in Jesus Christ through the preaching of the apostles of our Lord. There are also those in this group who have come out of Judaism, have heard the gospel, but have not yet made a commitment of faith to Jesus Christ. And because of the trials that always accompany the gospel, the Christians were being tempted to look over their shoulder at Judaism that they had left behind. And these unbelievers were not only tempted to look back, but they were being tempted to turn back. And so the book of Hebrews is written to present the new covenant as superior to the old covenant. And in doing so, the writer of Hebrews presents the fact that the mediator of the new covenant, Jesus Christ, is superior to anybody and everybody associated with the old covenant. And so the theme of the book of Hebrews is the superiority of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, we see that He is greater than the prophets. In chapter 1, verse 4, through the end of chapter 2, we see that He is greater than the angels. And now in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, we're going to see that He is greater than Moses. Notice chapter 3 and verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider... Jesus, the author and high priest of our confession. Now, for those of you who passed English, what is the subject, verb, and object of verse 1? The subject is implied. It's you, brethren. Consider Jesus. And this in capsule form is the message of the book of Hebrews. Consider Jesus. And in this passage, we are going to consider Jesus as he compares to Moses. In fact, if you just slide down to verse 3, you get a taste of that. He says, For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Now, the question that probably comes to your mind at this point is, why is it so important to show that Jesus is better than Moses? Well, you have to remember that this book is being written to Jews. And to the Jew, Moses was a highly respected figure. In fact, he was probably more highly esteemed than any other individual in history. You might get Abraham in there with some competition, but Moses ranked as a hero in Jewish history. You remember the hand of God preserved him at his birth, and the hand of God dug his grave when he died. And in between those two events, we see God working miracle after miracle through Moses. Moses pronounced the plagues on Egypt Moses delivered the children of Israel out of bondage. Moses raised his staff over the Red Sea and the waters parted. Moses led the people through the wilderness. Moses struck the rock and out came water. At his word, the earth opened up and swallowed up Korah and his men in Numbers chapter 16. At Moses' word, fire came out of heaven and consumed 250 men. 
If you were a Jewish boy playing in the backyard, your big brother would say, I'm Moses, and you would say, I'm tired of being Pharaoh. He was a hero among the Jewish people. God spoke to Moses personally in the burning bush. He spoke to Moses personally on top of the mountain. In Numbers 12, God says, I speak to the prophets in visions and dreams, but not so with Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Moses spoke with God, and you remember he came down from the mountain, and his face would shine from having been in the presence of God. But you know, the thing that really put Moses in a place of high esteem among the Jews was the fact that he was the law giver. And the law held the place of centrality for the Jew. The law was on the hit parade every week. Paul categorized the Jews this way in Romans 2.23. He says, you who boast in the law. And so Moses, the lawgiver, was highly esteemed by the Jews. In fact, we see the esteem for Moses in a couple passages in the Gospel of John. If you look over at John chapter 5 and verse 45, John chapter 5 and verse 45, Jesus says, Do you think that I will accuse you before the Father? The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. They had set their hope in Moses, the lawgiver. And then a few pages later in John chapter 9 and verse 28, John chapter 9 and verse 28, they say to the man who was born blind that Jesus healed, it says they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. And so to these Jews who held Moses in such high esteem, the writer says to these Hebrews, consider Jesus. He is greater than than Moses. And in verses 1 to 6, I see three ways that he's greater than Moses. I've listed them in your bulletin. He's greater in his representation, his responsibility, and his relationship. First of all, Jesus is greater in his representation, and we see that in verse 1. Verse 1 begins with the word, therefore. That's a word that's looking back. On the basis of what I have just said, consider Jesus. And if you remember last week, beginning in chapter 2 and verse 9, he describes the fact that because Jesus became a man and died, he became our substitute, our trailblazer, our sanctifier, our devil destroyer, our deliverer, our merciful and faithful high priest. And the writer says, therefore, consider him because of who he is because of all that he has accomplished for us consider jesus and then if you'll notice he calls us holy brethren now the writer uses two words here that are used other places in scripture to describe 
Christians. The first word is the word hagias, which is translated saints, holy ones. And the second word is adelpho or adelphos, a word you know from Philadelphia, the word for brethren. So he calls us saint brethren, holy brethren. And that's a reference to what he mentioned back in chapter 2 and verse 11 when he said, for both he who sanctifies and those who sanctify are one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. He has made us holy, so he is not ashamed to call us brethren. And so now in chapter 3, he calls us holy brethren. What a title. When you leave here today, hug somebody and say, Hi, holy brother. You see, there are no black sheep in the family of God. We are all holy brethren because of what Jesus has done for us. What a title that he gives us. And then he goes on to say, partakers of a heavenly calling. Now, in the book of Hebrews, we're going to notice that there's a contrast throughout between earthly things and heavenly things. The earthly things are related to Israel, and the earthly things are all shadows and copies. The heavenly things are the real things and the true things. And so in the book of Hebrews, we're going to read about heavenly things, heavenly gifts, a heavenly tabernacle, a heavenly country, a heavenly Jerusalem. And here we read about a heavenly calling, which reminds these Jewish readers that they were no longer tied to the earthly rituals of Judaism, that they should no longer be intimidated by the earthly trials that they now have a heavenly calling and a heavenly home. Philippians 3.20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven. Ephesians 1.3 says, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. Ephesians 2.6 says, He has seated us with Him in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. And then after reminding them who they are, holy brethren, called with a heavenly calling, he says, consider Jesus. And that word consider means to look attentively, to fix your eyes on. It was a word used of astronomers who would patiently gaze on and study the stars. And so what he's saying is the same way astronomers gaze on and study the stars day after day, month after month, year after year, so you gaze on and consider Jesus. And this was an especially essential exhortation to these Jewish Christians because they had one eye on Jesus and they had one eye back on Judaism. And he says, I want you to focus your entire attention on Jesus. Now, he's writing here to Christians. We can't debate that because he says, holy brethren. 
And I think we all need this same exhortation. Consider Jesus. So often we've got one eye on Jesus and we've got one eye on the world. We've got one eye on something else. And we need this kind of exhortation. Gaze intently and totally and only on Jesus Christ. Remember in Matthew 14 when Peter was walking on the water and it says, when he saw the wind and the waves, he became afraid and he started to sink. And then when he started to sink, he looked back at Jesus and he said, Lord, save me. Isn't that our life in a nutshell? We're looking at Jesus, we're making progress, and then we start looking around and we begin to sink. And we have to come back to looking at Jesus again. And that's what the writer says here. Consider, gaze on intently, Jesus Christ. Later in this book, in Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2, we're going to see two verses that if you've never memorized, you need to memorize. They say this, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. We're running a race. You ever try to run a race looking at your feet or looking around? What do you do when you run a race? You look at the finish line. You look at the, the ribbon across. That you're, You look at the goal. We're running a race, and we're to fix our eyes completely on Jesus. And then if you'll notice, he calls Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. That word apostle means sent one. So an apostle and a high priest, an apostle is one who represents God to man. A high priest is one who represents man to God. Now, here's where Jesus has a greater representation than Moses. Because Moses was an apostle. He was sent by God on behalf of God to represent God before man. But who was the high priest? Aaron. So Moses was an apostle, but he wasn't a high priest. Jesus is both apostle and high priest. And if you notice here, it doesn't say he was an apostle or a high priest. It says he was the apostle and the high priest. He is the perfect mediator. He represents God to man and he represents man to God. He takes us both by the hand and he brings us together and that was accomplished at the cross. And so he has a greater representation than Moses And then secondly, Jesus is greater in his responsibility in verses 2 to 4. Notice verse 2. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. Now, I, I like the fact that the writer is very tactful here. He understands that these Jewish people have a real affinity to Moses. So he doesn't jump right into the differences. First of all, he mentions the similarities between Jesus and Moses. He says they were both faithful. Verse 2 starts out talking about Jesus, and it says, He was faithful to him who appointed him. Did you realize that Jesus was faithful? 
As a boy in Luke 2.49, Jesus said, I must be about my Father's business. In John 6.38, He said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. In John 8.29, He said, And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. In John 9.4, He said, I must work the works of Him who sent me. And even at the end, he said in Matthew 26, 39, Not my will, but thine be done. And in his prayer in the garden in John 17, 4, he said, I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. God the Father gave Jesus a work to do, and he faithfully carried it out. And then tactfully, the writer says, so did Moses. That's really a paraphrase from Numbers 12, 7, where it says, Moses is faithful in all my household. Now, there were times when Moses was not faithful. When he killed the Egyptian, there was a time he struck the rock when God didn't tell him to strike the rock. But for the most part, he was faithful. And I have to pause here and ask each of us a question. How faithful am I? You see, this verse says, as Jesus was faithful, so Moses was faithful. And I have to ask, can you put your name in there? As Jesus was faithful, so Dan was faithful. As Jesus was faithful, so James was faithful. As Jesus was faithful, so I was faithful. That's a high statement. But that's what could be said of Moses. And it it goes on to say, he was faithful in all his house. Now what house is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the household of Israel. That's the house that Moses was in. And when it says his house, it's talking about God's house. So first of all, he shows the similarities. Jesus was faithful. Moses was faithful. And now after showing the similarities, he goes to the difference in verse 3. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. Moses was faithful, but Moses was a piece of the house. Jesus made the house. Moses was simply a member in the household of Israel. Jesus created and established Israel. You say, wow, to to actually build the house, to actually establish Israel, that must mean that Jesus was God. Exactly. And that's what verse 4 says. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Every house has a builder. You drive by and look at a house, you think to yourself, somebody built that. Well, the house of Israel was built by somebody, and that somebody is God. 
In fact, he goes on to say, God built everything. And when we go back to chapter 1 and verse 2, we find that Jesus built everything, which therefore means that Jesus is God. So Jesus is greater than Moses in his representation. He is an apostle and a high priest. He is greater than Moses in his responsibility. He is the builder. Moses is simply a doorframe in the house. And then thirdly, Jesus is greater in his relationship in verses 5 and 6. Notice verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. Moses was a servant. That's an interesting word. It's not, it's not the normal word for servant. It's not the word doulos, slave. Uh, it's not the word... Uh, uh, why did I do this? Uh, the word for deacon, diakonos. Uh, in fact, it's a word that's only used this one place in the New Testament. So it, it's a servant of status, a servant who is over other servants. But Moses was a servant. Probably the closest word in the New Testament is the word steward. It, it's somebody who oversees that which belongs to somebody else. And it says he was faithful. 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, It is required of stewards that a man be found faithful. Moses was a faithful steward of that which God gave him to do. In fact, in Exodus chapter 40, I counted eight times that it says Moses was obedient to all that God told him to do. And in Exodus 35 to 40, I counted 22 times where it says that Moses obeyed all that God commanded him to do. And again, I have to pause and say, could God say that about us? What a statement. He did everything that God commanded him to do. He was a faithful servant. You say, well, if, if, if the writer is trying to compare Jesus and Moses, why does he say so many positive things about Moses? Why doesn't he bring out all the weaknesses of Moses so Jesus will look better? Well, the answer is that he doesn't have to. You know, the writer can take the best human being with the best qualities and present that person and stand them up next to Jesus Christ and they pale in comparison to Jesus Christ. And that's what he does here. He presents Moses in a very positive light, but his glory doesn't compare at all to the glory of Jesus. Moses was a faithful servant. You know why he was a faithful servant? Look at the rest of verse 5. It says he was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. Now that's important. Moses was not the end of the line. And that's what Judaism fails to see. Moses was simply bearing testimony about things to come. In fact, look back in John chapter 5 and verse 46. John 5, 46. Jesus says, For if you believed Moses, 
you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Now, the Jews were saying, we believe Moses, we don't believe Jesus. And Jesus is saying, you can't do that. Because if you believe Moses, you have to believe me, because Moses was writing about me. On the road to Emmaus, in Luke 24, 27, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Look at the last chapter of the book of Acts, Acts 28. We find the apostle Paul, he's in house arrest in the city of Rome. And in Acts chapter 28, it says this in verse 23, Could you turn me off for a second so I can cough? Thank you. I didn't want you to hear that in stereo. It says, And they came to his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus, from both the law of Moses and from the prophets, from morning until evening. Paul was talking from morning till evening about Jesus out of the law of Moses because Moses wrote about Jesus. And then coming back to Hebrews chapter 3, Moses was a faithful servant who testified about Christ. And then verse 6 says, But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. Moses was a servant. Christ was a son. Moses was in the house. Jesus is over the house. Moses was in somebody else's house, God's house. Jesus is over his own house. And who is Christ's house? I hear, often hear people say, well, this building is the house of God. This is not the house of God. Notice what it says in verse 6. Over his house, whose house we are. We as believers are the house of God. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 says this, But in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. 1 Peter 2.5 says, Each of us as believers are living stones being built up into a spiritual house. And so he says, coming back to Hebrews 3, Jesus is a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Now, some people have a problem with that last phrase. Some people say, well, that means if I don't hold on, I'm going to lose it. 
That, that means I have to spend my whole life saying, boy, I, I, hope I hope I got it, I hope I got it, I hope I got it, and then I die and go, finally, I got it. That's not what he's saying here. In fact, if you look at the wording here, he doesn't say here, we will be the house of God if we hold on. He says we are the house of God. You see, the evidence that we are the house of God is that we hold on because that's what Christians do. People tell me all the time, they say, well, what about so-and-so who got saved and now they're off over here and they're, they're not, they've denied the Lord? I, I can't explain every situation. Only God knows. But I do know this, that when someone comes to genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ, they will endure. And when we get to Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to find out that those that the Lord loves, He disciplines. Those who are really His children who wander away, He goes out there and He spanks them and brings them back into line. And that's His business. And so the evidence that I am a child of God is that I endure. In fact, if you look closely at this verse, the issue here is not that you get saved and then you're doing something to keep your salvation. The, the writer is worried here that these people are going to go back to the law. He's worried that these people are going to go back to doing something. And what he's wanting them to do is stay considering Jesus. In fact, if you look at the phrases here, he says, I want you to hold fast to confidence, and I want you to hold fast to hope. Now, how do you do that? How do you hold fast to What is confidence? What is hope? It's not something you're doing. Confidence and hope is in somebody else. So he's saying, hold on to your faith. Hold on to your confidence. Don't turn back to doing things. Stay with your confession of faith in what Jesus has already done. You see, the issue here in verse 6 takes us back to verse 1, where he says, consider Jesus. That's the issue here. Fix your eyes on Jesus because he is totally sufficient for your salvation. I heard about a young man who went to college for the first time and his mother visited him at Thanksgiving. She was not real surprised that his room was in disarray. There were books and papers scattered all over the place, but she was shocked that there were some obscene posters hanging on the walls. She didn't say anything about it, but at Christmas time she sent him a box of gifts, and among those gifts was a picture of Jesus. He thanked her for the gifts and didn't say anything about the picture. And In the spring when she visited the school again, her son was eager to show her his room. Upon entering, she saw in the center of the wall the picture of Christ and all the other pictures were gone. And wisely, she said, Well, Jack, there's something different about your room. Did you get a new rug? No. Is that new wallpaper? No. Well, when I was here before, it seemed to me you had more pictures than now. And he said, That's right, Mom, but those other pictures seemed out of place after that one of Jesus came in the room. You know, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, everything else seems out of place. 
heard about a young man who was seated next to a young lady in church one Sunday and he was more intent on her than he was on the message. So he picked up the hymnal and leafed through it until he found what he wanted and then he placed it on her lap and pointed to the hymn and it said, I need thee every hour. She took the hymnal, searched until she found the appropriate hymn, set it in his lap, and it said, I'd rather have Jesus. <laughs> the songwriter wrote, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-scarred hand. Even to these Jews who probably had posters of Moses on their wall, nothing wrong with that. I don't know whose poster's on your wall, in your mind. Maybe it's, maybe it's the Pope in his Pope-mobile. Maybe it's Martin Luther. Maybe it's some admirable person. Which, see, the writer here says, consider Jesus. Focus your entire gaze on Jesus. And when you do, everything else fades away. I'm going to have the praise team come. We're going to close this morning by singing How Deep the Father's Love. And I want you to notice when we sing this song, there's a phrase in there that says, Behold the man upon the cross. That's what we want to do today. We want to focus our attention on the one who died in our place and give